This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You would think that while we're going through some difficult stuff, people wouldn't compound things. That if you were a bad person, that yeah, you'd take a break for a little while. You know what? The world's going through enough right now. Uh, I'm going to take my stupidity and uh, I'm going to take my bad deeds I'm just going to put them on the shelf for a little while. I'll uh, I'll get back to those when we need more balance in the world. It's bad enough right now. I don't need to make it worse. That kind of thing. That doesn't happen, unfortunately. And over the weekend, the flame of hope outside Bantinghouse, and you've probably driven by this a number of times if you are from the London area. It's on Adelaide, and as you come up and pass by Dundas right before you get to Queen's, there it is on the right-hand side, and you might drive by and think, wow, that's that's kind of cool. I, I, maybe you know the story of it. Maybe you don't know enough of the story of it. Well, we need to talk about it right now because it was damaged over the weekend, and joining us on London Live is Grant Maldman, who is the curator of the Banting House National Historic Site. Grant, I'm really sorry for what happened. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, unfortunately it's under these uh, not the greatest of circumstances for sure. Well, maybe we can turn this into a, a little bit more information. But first, let's get some information on what did take place. What happened to the flame? Uh, some individual or individuals uh, on Saturday night uh, felt the need to extinguish it, and so they stuffed in the burner uh, what looked like paper and wood and metal objects, and uh, it prevented uh, oxygen and pr- perhaps uh, uh, damaged the igniter and snuffed out the flame. There's oh, no other way man. to describe it. Now, were, were you in a position where you called police on this? Are they involved in this? Um, I was at home, actually, when this happened. It was uh, our friends at the London Fire Department received a call that someone had smelled natural gas, and so they gave me a call at home, and and you're just thinking, oh, goodness, it's you know, the igniters failed, and uh, they said to come down right away, and this is about 11 o'clock on Saturday night, and they had secured the site, and we inspected it. We saw all the damage that was that was done in there. Uh, we are filing a police report, but we don't have cameras on site, so there's not a whole lot that's going to be able to be done at that point. Well, it's down to eyewitness stuff, and like you say, Saturday night. About what time? Was it really late? Um, I received a call about 10.30. So it was uh, it was it was after hours and uh, uh, yeah it's you just it's disheartening you know you're sitting at home just enjoying an evening and, and you get a call and you're thinking oh goodness what it could it be and and you you do hope that uh, that it was something minor but obviously something more serious yeah Grant Maldon joining us the curator of the Banting House National Historic Site in London and we're talking unfortunately about the flame outside of Banting House being extinguished on Saturday night and now are we talking about repairs that need to take place before it will be lit again? Yes, we're uh, waiting to do a full assessment on it. As you can imagine uh, with Phase 2 in London opening everyone is extremely busy and so we're trying to to get our crew out to take a look at it. Uh, What I would like to assure people is the instance that we found that the flame was out, we do have a a travelling flame in the museum and so we instantly lit it because this is this is not just a symbol for london as and as you're mentioning it was it is internationally known this site and it represents hope for the 
11 million Canadians with diabetes or prediabetes, and the global community of almost 450 million people affected by diabetes around the world. This is, this is for them, and so we wanted to assure uh, that they knew that uh, we were still thinking of them, that we are still uh, as that symbol of hope in the battle against diabetes, and so we have that burning in the museum right now. Well, that's good. That's Thank you for doing that. Grant Maltman joining us, the curator of the Banting House National Historic Site. A lot of people would drive by and see the flame or walk by and see the flame and might not know that significance. So you just spelled it out. That is that is out there for anyone who has diabetes to know that the world's thinking about them? Yes, and it's what makes it equally frustrating. So it was lit 31 years ago, next month, by the Queen Mother when she was here, and it's not supposed to go out until a cure for diabetes is found. That was, that was the, the deal that was, that was made, that it would be the research team, whether they be from Western University or Lawson here in town, Research Institute here in town, or somewhere in Europe and the United States, when that cure is found, that research team was to be brought to London to extinguish the flame and announce to the world that a cure has been found. And so to have it go out in this selfish, selfless act uh, is extremely disheartening. Yeah, absolutely. Grant, when it comes to maybe something that we wouldn't know but need to know about Sir Frederick Banting or about the discovery of insulin, what do you like to tell people so that they get kind of that extra bit of the story? Well, I guess uh, a very timely question. On July 1st, we're supposed to start our 100th anniversary commemorations. It was in this house on October 31st, 1920, when after a night of restless sleep, uh, Banting... Uh, after preparing a lecture he used to give at Western, writes down a 25-word hypothesis, and those 25 words would lead to the discovery of insulin 10 months later after only 12 weeks of experiments. And that discovery lifted the death sentence for those uh, with type 1 diabetes. And so the message is uh, it got its start here, and it was 100 years ago this year. That's wild. Woke up, some kind of eureka moment, wrote it down, and a couple of trials later they went, yeah, you know what, we've got something? Yeah, it, it's that quick. It, it's it's one of those, uh, no matter how many times you tell the story, it's still it, it's so incredible. It was uh, a struggling doctor, can't pay his bills, takes a job at Western's Medical School. He's asked to give a subject on a uh, lecture on a subject he knows very little about. He reads everything he can, has this eureka moment, and writes down 25 words. Spells diabetes wrong, but we'll give him that because his friendship <laughs> is fantastic. And uh, you go from idea, October 1920, to Banting being awarded Canada's first Nobel Prize, October 1923. That is phenomenal. And you know what? There's the story. And that's that's the thing that now I think all of us, now that you've shared that with us or anybody who wasn't aware of that story next time you pass by that flame that's what we need to be thinking about that's why it's there and it's there once it gets back lit to represent what will hopefully one day be a cure and that research team can come and actually extinguish the flame and grant it's it's a beautiful thing i am really sorry for what happened i think we all are and we'll look forward to the day when we can drive by or walk by and see that flame burning again well thank you very much i really appreciate the time grant thank you Stay safe. Thank you. You too. That's Grant Maltman, the curator of the Banting House National Historic Site. And we don't need to sit here and go, oh, those morons. And oh. The world has morons in it, unfortunately. Uh, what we need to do is look past that right now. I mean, if anybody has seen anything, please report that to police. You know, 
get these people who wound up doing this. They're they're idiots. Uh, they probably don't know it, but they are. And there's not much we can do about that. But to know the story, to know the significance of that flame, you know, as we look around within our own province over the next while, while we're not able to do a lot of traveling, hopefully we do get to get out and discover some of the things that exist right in our midst that we wouldn't have known about. I mean, have you, even living in this area, been to the Banting House National Historic Site? We don't tend to visit things in our own backyard. But you look at how cool that story is, and there's a real reason to do it. I want to thank Grant for helping us out. Take a look at the month. Easy month to figure out this June that we're in. 30 days has September, April, June, and November, right? Okay. We're halfway through. And that means that small businesses are looking and saying, well, we managed to work something out for the start of the month, paying rent. How about now the next month? Because July is halfway here. And we have seen the moratorium. I don't think that word's been used, but that's essentially what it is. On evictions. Commercially, the province has brought that in. So how much does that help? What is happening? Let's get a checkup on small businesses around this province and across this country, really. Michael Smith is the Chief Impact Officer with Impact Bridge. Michael, happy Monday, I hope. Hey, yeah, indeed. It's uh, it's certainly um, you know one of those mid-month check-ins for sure. Uh, great to be back on with you, Mike. Well, it's great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about what has changed with regard to the province saying, okay, we're not going to have any evictions commercially. It's something you certainly have been focused on for a long time. When you got that news, what did you think of it? Yeah, so um, what what I can share from you know the work that Save Small Business has been doing to really across, you know, all of Ontario and across the country with, with 20,000 small businesses across Ontario, we've, we've heard that there were some huge sighs of relief when the ban on eviction was announced by Premier Ford. Um, but it's still a work in progress to have more landlords be willing to apply to the program on their small business tenants' behalf. And, and really the need for the ban on evictions was based on the fact that up to half of small businesses had landlords that were not prepared to cooperate in the rent relief program. And from what we've heard from British Columbia and from the small businesses in Ontario that we've spoken with over the last week and a bit, we we have seen some signs of more landlords now cooperating because they can't evict tenants. And if small business tenants can't pay rent, then really it is part of the responsibility that landlords have to support their small business tenants and cooperate in the program. So things are moving in the right direction, but there's more work that's still needed. Michael, one of the first estimates that you had was one in five landlords may not apply for any kind of help. And now you're saying about half were thinking uh, they're not necessarily going to cooperate in all of this. So, so that's kind of where we were in the landscape. Yeah. So we have seen, you know, some, uh, surveys that we've done over the, the last uh, six weeks and, and certainly um, other organizations doing similar surveys 
um, we're, we're seeing things move in the right direction. Um, the, the survey results and the, the conversations are still indicating that some landlords um, are just not willing to apply at all. And it's, it's challenging um, when, when, you know, businesses can't pay rent because they've been closed and their revenues have dropped. So, so it is the kind of situation where we are moving in the right direction, but it's going to take additional action. It's going to take um, really some, some on the fly solutions to figure out how, how do more uh, small businesses access rent relief um, either directly from the government or um, what other steps are going to be, be taken um, because, you know, as, as it currently stands, um, some landlords just have not been prepared to participate at all. Michael Smith joining us, Chief Impact Officer with Impact Bridge. Michael, with regard to the relief that might be available, how do small businesses look at dealing with this? Are a lot of them paying a little bit of rent and then thinking we're going to have to kind of pay the rest of it later and, and this just keeps accumulating? Or kind of give us the the scenario that you're hearing exists out there, if you could. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, with businesses there in, in the London area and across the province, what what we've uh, continued to hear is, you know, there there are some uh, small businesses that, that were able to access the uh, loan program from the the federal government. So that would have provided uh, some small businesses with up to 40000 in uh, an interest-free loan with with up to uh, 25% of that. So for, for someone taking um, a 40000 loan, they would have gotten 10000 of that that can be forgiven if, if the loan's repaid in, in the next two years. So some some small businesses have been able to access that that loan, and and some have continued to pay rent using that loan for for the current um, you know time frame, April May June. Now, really, that becomes increasingly challenged if the landlords are not in any way, shape, or form prepared to participate in the rent relief because because really the concern that Save Small Business um, has had since the get go is that. So debt isn't the solution for most small businesses, and, and, and asking small businesses to take on more debt is very challenging. So that's where you know, the, the rent relief program is essentially a grant or a contribution from the government that, that would help both landlords and tenants to make it through this time. And so for those uh, small businesses that were not able to access the government loan um, and have experienced... 80, 90, 100% drop in revenues as they were forced to close since mid-March. For them, it's kind of whatever combination of things it's going to take. Um, pleading, um, some some small businesses have said to me, look, you know, I'll speak to the media. That's part of putting more pressure on my landlord. Other, other small businesses have been forced to sign deferral agreements saying that they'll make up for rent in the coming six months or so. But it's it's a real mixed bag of um, of challenges that ultimately mean for for most small businesses they're they're either breathing a huge sigh of relief that their landlord finally has decided to participate, you know, and that might be half of small businesses at this point, and then the others would be, you know, really um, really struggling to figure out how how do they get their landlord to participate because if. If that doesn't happen, then for most of those businesses, 
they may not be able to reopen and they may not be able to really make a go of it because they're in such a challenging position. We're talking with Michael Smith, Chief Impact Officer, Impact Bridge. With a reopening happening through much of Ontario right now, we've seen reopening across the country as well, and may even see it in places like Hamilton and Toronto today. We're going to find that out in less than an hour. With that happening, how much optimism exists? Because you're mentioning some businesses dealing with losing 80, 90, even 100% of what they're used to making. You, you can't operate like that. So how much optimism exists with the word reopening being introduced? Yeah, I think that, you know, dealing with what's outstanding from the crisis is still the biggest challenge for for many small businesses that were forced to close and have had a, you know, significant drop in their in their revenues, which means they can't pay rent. Um so, you know, as more and more businesses can reopen, um that that may help, but I think it's it's hard particularly for um some businesses like restaurants or bars that will not be able to operate and and have their their sales bounce back to anything close to what they would have been previously part of that has to do with you know businesses whether bars restaurants or even you know talking to a friend who runs a chiro clinic um you know he was saying look he can only operate at at a significantly limited capacity and we certainly know that that would be the case for for restaurants that um that need to have you know maybe 30 percent maximum 50 percent of patrons in. Um, so there's certainly good solutions that are coming around. How do we extend patios and other, um, outdoor, um, options, but, but really it is, it is still challenging and, you know, beyond the rent relief program, which will sort of have its conclusion, um, in, in this sort of near term, it is around what, what additional supports are going to help small businesses across the province and across the country to, to actually, um, last this out and and that's going to extend through the remainder of the summer certainly through the fall and and the question mark is you know what does it look like through the winter which for many businesses is a a slower time so i think we need to think long term around how do we protect small businesses to to weather um not just the short-term crisis but but through both the reopening and the recovery to get to the point where businesses have returned to somewhat close to normal levels um and that that could be a longer haul michael smith chief impact officer with impact bridge michael one last thing and that is when everything kind of clamped down there were certain things that were able to operate and they were a lot of the big box stores ultimately or you know the the monstro marts to steal from the simpsons and a lot of the local kind of took a back seat how much emphasis do we need on saying no 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 we have to support local people right now it could mean life and death for them it's a it's a real important point, Mike, and, and what I can say from some of the, the studies that I've seen is it's been a huge transfer of wealth from small and local businesses, uh, many um, locally owned and independently owned, to to larger um, larger chains. Um, and, and so, you know, really it is uh, encouraging to see, for example, that, you know, farmers markets uh, and and other um, local businesses there in London and, and, and across uh, main streets um, of the country are are you know really able to reopen, um, but it's but it's it's really critical that we all recognize that you know our main streets and and our local community businesses are are still on the brink, and it's it's going to take 
a combination of uh, team effort from governments, local, provincial, municipal, as well as us as um, as consumers and 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 fellow citizens to to support our neighbors and to to help bring back our main streets and to help protect those neighbors that that have been a, a vital part of our communities. Well, that's exactly what we'd like to see happen. We'll see where uh, some of that support can come from because it's a lot of dollars and it's trying to find those dollars at the same time trying to keep these businesses afloat. Michael, we really appreciate the time. Anything else that we didn't touch on that you think we need to know? Well, I I would certainly just invite your listeners. I mean, you've had me on many times, Mike, and for those that haven't uh, joined our grassroots coalition, savesmallbusiness.ca would be where you can join us in really what is an attempt to to help save small business across the country and and they're in the london area well we really appreciate the initiative michael we appreciate the time please keep safe thanks so much take care mike take care that is michael smith from impact bridge and they are taking a look around and saying okay here's what's wrong what can we do about it? And they're trying to find solutions for a number of small business owners. And you can check that out at savesmallbusiness.ca. They created a map that essentially sits on top of Google Maps, and it invites people to kind of put a pin where their business is and say, we're likely to close, we are very likely to close, or we're closed already. And it's pretty scary to see all those pins on that map Fittest firefighter seems redundant. It's like saying the Department of Redundancy Department, isn't it? Fittest firefighter. That's just the thing. Well, as we get a little bit of a COVID-19 break, we're still going to talk about how COVID-19 has affected a certain situation for our next guest. But at the same time, we're going to talk about something that does not deal with the pandemic or the virus outside of that fact. Joining us right now is, well, I'm guessing, but we'll have to check, London's fittest firefighter who was due to be in Germany right now competing to be the world's fittest firefighter. London District Fire Chief Steve Baker joins us. District Chief Baker, how are things? Hi, Mike. Things are great. How's yourself? Well, I'm I'm okay. I'm all right. Um, I think we're all kind of in a similar boat. However, you would have been on a, a different boat, a flying boat, going across the ocean if this whole pandemic wasn't happening, getting set to go to the Fire Fit Championships. Or actually, today, you would be there, would you not? That's correct. Would have been there for the, the whole week, competing in the European Championships for Fire Fit. Man, and you've been doing this for a while. How long? Since 1995. Since 1995. So you have basically maintained this elite level of fitness from 1995 until now? Because I don't think you can take a day off, can you? Well, I do, I do take the odd day off. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was other than a, a few a few seasons I had to take off in regards to raising a couple of daughters that uh, time-wise just didn't allow me to, to train and compete. But for the most part of that time, yeah, it's uh, it's been a great time. Fitness is is has been very important in my life, and obviously very important uh, in my line of work. Um, 
And uh, I think it's it's important to be fit no matter what line of work you're in, but some activities or occupations, it's a little more important. So uh, that's my thought process of the whole thing is for being the fittest firefighter in London or the fittest firefighter in the world. I, I, I don't want to push myself down. That's a lot of pressure. I don't want to push myself down that far, but, uh, but, but I, but I enjoy physical fitness and I think it's, it's very important for everyone to make it uh, a part of their part of their life for sure. London District Fire Chief Steve Baker joining us on London Live. For anybody who has seen clips of the Fire Fit Championships, it's it's amazing to watch what happens. But can you kind of describe some of the events that you have to prepare yourself for? Well, every event that that the the actual uh, competition or the the Fire Fit event that we have it it involves activities or or uh, work uh, parts of the work that we would do at a structure fire so um number one is that being firefighters and active at a structure fire we have special equipment that that we're required to wear so that the, we're not having any problems in regards to the heat of the fire and or the the smoke or the atmosphere that exists at a structure fire we wear in this competition we wear full bunker gear we wear uh, an SCBA, or self-contained breathing apparatus, on our back, and we breathe the air that's within that tank throughout the race. Um, it's climbing six stories, or a six-story tower, climbing to the top of it. Uh, and then on your way up, you have to carry a 42-pound high-rise kit, as they, as they call it. And it's just a, a, a pack or a flake of hose that's on your shoulder carry it all the way to the top and throw it in a in a box at the top of the tower and then you lean over the the railing where there is a rope hanging with a 45 pound donut roll of hose which you are now required to haul all the way up to the top of the tower uh, and again throw it into an equipment box at the top and then make your way down as quickly as possible making sure that you touch every stair on the way down because safety is very important in the firefighter's job and Taking multiple stairs sometimes would lead you to maybe fall down a couple of those flights, and we don't want that to happen. So once you get to the bottom of the tower, then you make your way over to what they call a force machine, and it involves uh, a sledgehammer and beating a weight that is on a, a sled back approximately five feet, and that is um, that is like chopping through a, a, a roof with an axe. It's, it's that simulation that the forced machine demonstrates. Once you move it back the required distance, then you make your way through a pylon course, um, 140 feet of, of distance to the end. Uh, and then once you're at the end of that 140 feet, there is a charged hose line, which you're now to pick up, put over your shoulder, and you drag it 100 feet. And once you get to the end of the 100 feet, there is a target there which you turn the nozzle on and try to knock down the target with the stream of water. If you're successful, then you drop that on the ground and then make your way over to a rescue mannequin that is lying on his back. And uh, your last job in regards to the competition is to sit him up and pick him up and drag him backwards 100 feet uh, and across, uh, across the finish line where there's a timer that will be stopped that will show you how well you did. I think a lot of us are out of breath just hearing you 
talk about doing all of those things. That's, that is an incredible run of things that you've got to do, and all of this in full gear, right? That's, that's correct. You wear about anywhere between 50 and 60 pounds of gear that you have on uh, in regards to uh, what a firefighter would normally wear at a, at a structure fire. Do you remember the first time you went through this course and, and what it was like just to experience it that first time? I do. Uh, we were, it was in 1995, and I think we were at a competition, and the first one was in Kitchener, and, and we were there. We had our the, the current gear that we were wearing. We had our rubber boots on, and uh, wow, it was, it, was, it was something to be able to do the whole thing. We, we tried to do parts of it out at our training tower and put some of the events together, but to actually get there and, and strap the uh, the air pack on and, and breathe that air and doing it all with uh, with with your full bunker gear and going through the whole thing uh, was a real eye opener. But you know it was it was a challenge and and we were all up for challenges and we were we we were bit by the bug and it was kind of a a love hate relationship for the for the last for the last twenty seven years to be able to go there and compete at this race. Well, a postponement this year, but it'll take the season into 2021 as we talk with London District Fire Chief Steve Baker about the Fire Fit Championships. So when you work out, will you will you ever work out without gear, or do you tend to do a lot of workouts wearing your fire gear? Well, I, I do work out when I'm, you know, at, at now in my basement or in a laneway or trying to do some push-ups or sit-ups or something like that. I'm not wearing gear, but... I have a um, I have some activities that I do that would be normally that would be training towards the goal of competing, and that involves um, dragging a, an old wooden pallet that I have weighted down, and I have a, my own rescue mannequin that I'm able to to use as well, um, dragging it up and or back and forth in in front of my house on the street, and uh, yeah, I'll I'll wear full bunker gear with that because it's just nice to be able to to train with the actual gear on, so your body gets used to moving inside all that extra gear. Well, Chief Baker, thank you so much for describing all of this for us. Gives us a, a little bit of a, a break from a lot of the COVID-19 talk, even though that this story does have a COVID-19 effect to it. What do you think? You gear up for next year? You, you still looking at 2021 to continue this? Most definitely. I, I've got a couple years left before retirement from the fire department. And uh, I, I intend to try to do as best I can to stay at the top of uh, that ladder in regards to being fit and being able to compete. Well, you are uh, somebody who helps to put this, certainly this city, on the map, but even this country on the map and the international competitions that you've done. And so we thank you for that, and uh, we thank you for the work that you do in your regular job as well. Thanks so much for the time, and keep safe. Thanks very, Mike. Or thanks very, um, very much, Mike. It was a pleasure to be on here today. Cheers. All the best. Take care. That's London District Fire Chief Steve Baker on the Fire Fit Championships. One of the things that we do get coming out of this, I mean, if you missed it earlier, Dr. Chris Mackey got talking about masks and how it looks to be, you know, significant that if you wear a mask, that's helping in reducing the spread of COVID-19. So there is that. But at the same time, another message that is certainly gaining momentum from all of COVID-19 is We've got to look after our bodies. You know, if if you are to get COVID-19, you want to make sure that you are physically ready to handle what it's going to bring. And 
if you aren't in great physical shape, sometimes you know makes it harder to deal with anything. Makes it harder to deal with a cold, let alone what you experience with COVID nineteen. So the one foot in front of the other thing. If you see people out and you think, oh man, you know, I'd, I'd love to get working out, but I can't do that firefighter course. Therefore, there's no way I can even start working out. That's just not me. Don't let that get to you. I mean, walk to the end of the block. You know, walk. Walk a hundred meters, turn around, come back. That's it. That's all, that's all you should do. Little bit by little bit. Talk to any physical expert or physical fitness expert and they will tell you it, it all starts with the tiniest thing. You know, moving your feet up and down while sitting on the couch. Just something to give your body a little bit of physical activity and then try and set yourself a goal so that you can increase to something. Well, I'm moving my feet up and down for two minutes in front of the TV today. And then tomorrow, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk up and down the stairs three times. That's what I'm going to do. And then that's that's it. And then maybe the next day you say, I'm going to do that again. And the next week you say, I'm going to try and do that four times this week. And if that gets into your head, it's amazing how quickly you'll catch on to it. And then if you do hit that state where you can say, you know what, I do feel better because I am more active, it's hard to shake it. Once that gets into you, it's hard to get rid of that. But it really does just start with that one little step. And it can be the tiniest thing. You might think, that's useless. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I've never done this in my life. No, don't don't let that bother you. Don't look at people who are able to do a firefighter course and compete on an international level in fitness. Don't say, yeah, well, I could never be like that, so I might as well not do anything at all. Start small. It's amazing how quickly it'll catch on. And now, because we don't have a lot of other things to do, this is a perfect opportunity. All right, I'm finished by physical fitness rant, I promise. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 